Wow, I have had church today. I'm not kidding you. I, I, I tell you, there is no place like this place, any place, so this must be the place. And uh, give glory to God. What a great church. Great church. Thank you. You're the best people. I've been, I've been treated so well. From the moment I arrived this morning when I asked for how to find the pastor's office, immediately one of the older gentlemen was going one way. He stopped and said, I'm going to take you and led me right up to one after another. And everywhere I've looked, I've seen, I know why people come from all over the place to this church. It's filled with love and great people, and I'm grateful. I say a word about your pastor. I want to tell you he's one of the dearest, best friends I have anywhere. I couldn't ask for a better friend. We toured Washington, D.C. together several years ago. Back then, if I'd have known, I should have just nominated him for president right then, and we'd have fixed a lot of stuff. Uh, one of the best leaders, best encouragers. I brag on him all the time, and I was talking about him behind his back last week with a bunch of pastors in Florida. They were making excuses. You can't grow a church because we're in a small city. And I said, I don't want to hear it. I want to tell you about a place where you can't find on the map. And everybody from five counties around come. And, and I said to them, look, when God's hand's on a man's life, God will let the world know he's there, and, and he's sure done it. I'm honored to be with you today. And then Cameron, I have to say, fantastic music. I mean, when I first knew Benny and I, yeah, you can give him a hand if you would. That's when I first met Benny, there were two staff members. There was, there was Stan and there was Cameron. And Cameron back then, I don't even think he took the training wheels off his bicycle back then. He was just a little thing. And boy, he's grown up. I'm not kidding. He's the best I've seen. I, I just, I have been blessed by you. So thank you for letting me be here. Um, I'm going to share with you a story today I hope gives encouragement to you. I hope if you're here and maybe in your life, you say, I've got a, I've got a son or a daughter and they're far from God. And, and I really wish God would change their life, but they've gone so far. When you listen to my story, you'll realize you can't go too far that God can't reach you. You may be in a situation where you say, I'm here today, and, and I just need to know that God can do a miracle in my life. I want you to believe, if you hear this story, I want you to believe that God loves you every bit as much as he loves me. And if you'd have been the only person in the world, Jesus would have come and died for you. Jesus has a plan for your life, and God can do in you. All I am is nothing more than a trophy of his grace to remind everybody else that there's a God that can do miracles. I want to read you a verse this morning that is my story as well. It's really his story all along. The Psalms 40 verse 1 says this from verse 1 to 5. When David wrote these words, I, I felt like he was writing this just for me. He said, he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who's made the Lord his trust. And then listen to his praise. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, <laughs> they'd be too numerous to count. He's saying we'd be here all year just talking about how good God's been. Let me give you my life story for a brief moment and share with you how that passage means so much to me and what Jesus means to me. I was born in Okinawa, Japan. My father was in the military. I've never been back to Okinawa. The closest I've ever got is I watched Karate Kid 2. And 
It was filmed there. So I would say, that's home, and I'd roll it back and play it some. I was raised in a family that um, my father had no interest in a boy. Uh, he had what was called the alpha male syndrome. That is that he didn't want any other male in the home competing with him. It's kind of like, in fact, in the, um, in the world of animals, the hippopotamus is that way. If a, if a male hippo is born, the father will try to kill it. And so they have to, the mother has to immediately get it out of the presence. I was four years of age before my father ever picked me up for the first time. Now, he was my biological father. And my mother and he had a fairly good marriage as long as she did everything he said like he wanted. But he, um, he picked me up, moved me out of the doorway at four, said, come get the baby. And I never had a relationship with the father. I, um, I, he lived in the home. We had financially, we had a nice home. And on the outside, it looked great. We had, um, we had housekeepers and gardeners. And I was known as the kid that pretty well had a good life. But on the inside, there was just no love or validation. I played sports and athletically, I did very well. When I did academics in school, I did real well. My only problem was that I had no male voice in my life to tell me this is what you ought to do. Oh, this is what I have dreams for you. In fact, whatever I would say, he just didn't care. We just, I did everything I could until the day he died. In fact, a week before he died, we talked on the phone, and I said all I ever wanted was for a father to say I love you, and he was his dying words to me. I'd never say that. And so I lived with that. But I learned how to live with it because to me, that was my normal. So when you're in a dysfunctional home, you know something? You're usually the last one to know it's dysfunctional. You know, everybody around you sees it. They know it. They wonder how you made it through. But to you, that is your normal. So that was the way I was raised. At the age of 14, I wound up doing things, experimenting with things. I, I had a friend that uh, his father ran the Budweiser distributing company there. And so I was raised in a little town called Eufaula, Alabama. So I was drinking with my buddies on the weekends after ball games. We'd play sports. Then we'd go spend the night off. And I started drinking when I was 14, did marijuana when I was 14. In fact, had a friend that his brother had come back from Vietnam. He said, try this. We didn't know what it was. We tried that. I would try virtually anything I could. One of my friend's mothers, a married, attractive lady, one day seduced me, and I wound up having sex at the age of 15, and I was just lost. Now, nobody knew this because in the outwardly, you know, you don't tell it, and on the outside, it looked well, but on the inside, here I was, this empty young guy, trying any adventure, trying anything I could to fill the hole. If you had to ask me what was the number one problem that I had, I would call it aimless. I was totally aimless. I didn't have any direction of where I would go or what I should do in life. So there was not much hope for what I would achieve or be, and I didn't know where to go or what to do. Now, we moved all of a sudden. What happened is in the middle of the 11th grade, my father just comes in, and he says, uh, we're moving. And he got a business deal. Apparently, he'd been working on it a while, and he moved from, from Eufaula to Columbus. And, uh, and so I leave in, a, in the middle of the 11th grade. I leave school on a Friday and I'm packed up and moved to another city, and on Monday morning, I get up and decide I better go find a school. I didn't know anything. We had one public high school in Eufaula. I moved to Columbus, and they had at least eight. Now, my father never said, you need to go to school. I just thought I need to go. So I got out, and I went. I went down the road, and the nearest school I pulled in, I just assumed whatever was nearest is where you went. I didn't know you went by zones. And, and so I go in to Baker High School, the very school that Newt Gingrich graduated from. So I go there and tell them that I want to enroll. They said, well, go sit in the hallway. We'll, we'll call you in a moment. I sat there all day, all the way to the end of the day. At the end of the day, I got up and left. I came back on the next day. I did the same thing, sat there all day. On the third day, I sat there almost all day. 
Near about 1 o'clock in the afternoon after lunch hour was over, I'm still sitting there with students come back and forth, and a coach stopped by and he said, young man, what kind of trouble did you get into? You've been outside the principal's office all this week. What have you done? I said, I didn't do anything. I'm trying to get in school. So he asked me where I lived, and he said, you're in the wrong place. You got to go, and he named another place that I didn't know because I was new. I didn't know. And so you know what I did? I just quit. In the middle of the 11th grade, I just quit. I just said, nobody can help me. I'll just go get a job. I knew how to work. So I went and asked a guy, could I get a job? He said, sure. He hired me on. I started working for him. And my parents didn't even know I was, had a job, was working for him for about three months. One day they said something about the school, how's, how's school going? I said, I quit three months ago. They said, what? I said, yeah, I didn't know what to do. I went to work here. And so I go to work there, and then on the evenings, I'm just hanging out with friends and, and just trying to figure out what to do with life and where I go. And then one day, a young boy had gone to a church. He went to a great church like this one. When he got to the church, the pastor made a statement that would change my life. The pastor said, I want you to think about somebody you know that's lost, somebody that's going to hell, somebody that doesn't know God and feels like that there is no hope for their life, and if you know that person, won't you go tell them that Jesus loves them, that he died for them? You go give them the gospel, witness to them. So I'm sitting at home one morning, and I get a knock on my door. When I go to the door, there's this boy standing there. He's my age. He's 17. And he apparently had never, he'd never taken one of those witnessing classes, you know. He didn't know there's four spiritual laws or how to go through a gospel track. It was his first time witnessing. So he knocks on my door. I open the door, and he looks at me, and he takes a deep breath. He goes, and then he says, Bill, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. And he's shaking. Everything you're looking for will be found in Jesus. And then he says, I got to go. And he took off. <laughs> I remember when he walked away, I thought, well, that was kind of weird. What, what was that about? And, and when he went away, one of my friends was there. He said, what do you say? I said, that was the weirdest thing. Got knocks on the door. I mean, it, like a trick-or-treater. Everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. And he, I got to go. And he takes off. And my friend said, wonder what he meant by that. I said, I don't know. But have you ever heard a statement or a song, you get it in your head and you can't get it out? Like tonight, you'll be singing the worship songs all night long. You get the words there and you just can't get over it. For two weeks, those words messed me up. There were times I even got mad with the guy. I'd think, why did he say that? I mean, I'd have a moment of silence and something come to my mind, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. Now, I'd never gone to church. I wasn't raised in church. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know the gospel. None of that. I knew that Jesus died for me. I did know that because I'd talked with friends one night that we were hanging around a campfire. I knew that Jesus was, took the wrath of God for my sin. I knew and even believed that he rose from the grave. But nobody ever told me one important thing. They never told me I could call out to God. When David said I cried out to God, they never told me. I knew it as a fact, but I never knew that I could invite God into my life. I never knew that. So this boy witnesses to me, and then two weeks later, I would need what he did. Two weeks later, I'm driving down a street, downtown Columbus, 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning with a friend of mine. As we're driving down the street, we're in my car. I look over on the side of the road. I see a lady in high heels with a mini skirt, long black hair, and I knew she was a prostitute. Now, I was raised in a very small city. I'd never seen that, never heard of that. But I turned to my friend and I said, have you ever been with a prostitute before? He said, no. I said, me neither. I said, come on, let's try this. He said, no, no, don't do this. I said, oh, come on, let's try it. And, and I, I never had a fear, a reckless fear is what I, a, a reckless life is what I always had. I never had a fear of something like that. I just didn't think. I turned that car around, wheeled up, started talking to her. A man came out from the bushes behind her and walked up to the window and leaned in and began to talk to us. You could smell his horrible stench of alcohol. He'd been drinking all night. 
What I would later find out is this. He'd been in prison several times, and what he, was, what he had planned on while he was there was that was actually his wife. He said, we're going to take somebody back to my home, and then I'm going to kill them. He told her that. She had testified to that. I'm going to kill him right in front of you. And he said, and then I'm going to get off because it will have happened in my home, and we'll call it a burglary or something. But he said, that's what I'm going to do. And that was his intent. I'll rob him, kill him, and you'll be my witness. I had no idea that was his plan. We get in that car, and we drive a few miles away, and we pull up at this old house. We pull up at the back door, and I get out of the driver's seat. My friend slides over the driver's seat of my car. The girl and I get, gets out with me. We meet right in front of the car. And this guy gets out, and he stands by the door of the car, and he just points. And so they're staying there, and she and I are going up to this little house. We walk up to this little house about 30, 40 feet away, and I open the door. It's an old shack almost. I lean to on the back of the house. The door was rickety, and we open the door. We step in. There's a little cot on the right side. There's a shiffer robe there. There's a door that leads to the rest of the house here. And then there's this light hanging from the center of the room, just a wire with an old light bulb screwed in it, no shade or nothing, and a string on it. And so when we walk in the room, she pulls that light, and it turns it on. And then she gets fully undressed, and I do the same. And then she points over here to the bed. So I walk toward the bed, and she turns the light off. When she turns the light off, just about the time I'm almost going to sit down, all of a sudden I could hear something creaking on the floor. And then I felt a cool brush of wind, and I realized somebody else is in this room. I knew I'd been set up. I jump up, and the moment I do, she turns on the light again, and the man who had been outside is now standing in front of me, and what he had done was he told my friend, I got to go around and get a cigarette. I'll be right back. But he walked around the side of the house on cue just like she had planned. She turned off the light, and then she turned it back on to give him time to step in when the light was off. He would thought everything through. He, she turns on the light. I jumped up, and he's standing right where she was. She stepped behind him now. He's standing right in front of me, about, about maybe less than a foot from me, and in his right hand is a butcher knife. The, the blade on that life is nine and a half inches long. I remember seeing that knife in his right hand, and he smiled. He said these words, now you're going to die. Before I had a chance to move, he swung it. When he swung that knife, the first place it went was into my chest. It went all the way in. The only thing that stopped it was the handle on the knife. It felt like being hit in the side with a baseball bat. It was the most sharp pain at that moment. It took my breath away. I remember when he stabbed me there, it came out my back. It went all the way through to the heart, took out the sac called the pericardium, which is, uh, holds fluid that keeps your heart from hitting your rib cage. It ruptured the pericardium and was one-eighth of an inch below my heart. Before I had a chance to move, he pulled it out and swung the second time. This time it was coming toward my eye. I moved back, but he lunged forward, and it went in my throat. It went in this side, and it came out over here. It cut my jugular vein completely in half. As far as known, I'm one of only four people that have on record that is documented that ever lived with that kind of injury. Some people have lived a little bit longer, but you usually will bleed out anywhere between four and 20 minutes from that. Your jugular vein is the size of your thumb. It carries just the main artery that carries the blood to your brain and to your body. And so at that moment, I, I realized I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm not getting out of this room. I, there's a, this, this man's a madman. I start fighting with him. I hit him as hard as I can, and it actually knocks him down. He goes all the way down on his back. I leaped over, 
But I had locked the door on the way in. And, and so I'm starting to grab the door. And while I'm doing it, he, he from his back on the floor stabs me a third time, this time in the liver. Now, I've been stabbed three times in the throat, in the chest, and the liver. Any one of those I should have died from. I had a friend years earlier that had been stabbed one time with an ice pick and died. So I knew this was not in any way favorable to living. I'm trying to get out of the door. He's getting up cussing, and all of a sudden, I just hit the door as hard as I can on my shoulder. I ran into it. The door didn't open this way. It fell straight down like a plank from the top to the bottom. When it fell, my friend said, I'm sitting outside in the car. I hear all this banging around, this commotion. I know something's going on. He said, I'm trying to figure out. He said, I've got the radio down now, and I'm looking and glaring. He said, it was like something out of a horror movie. He said, all of a sudden, the door just fell down. There you were with the light behind you so you could see you clearly covered in blood. I leaped off those steps and ran past that car. I hit the hood of the car and screamed, get out of here. I ran about 30 more feet, and by this time, I was winded because I was swallowing blood just to be able to breathe. And as I started wobbling, I grabbed a light pole in the parking lot there, and, and, I, and I fell on this light pole. And when I grabbed it, I started sliding down the pole, and I was choking on my own blood, and I heard these words again, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. I heard the words of that boy two weeks earlier. That was the oddest time, the crazy, but it came at that moment. And I remember doing what I'd never done in my whole life. I prayed. I prayed a prayer. I just prayed, God, come into my life. Jesus, save my soul. Forgive me of my sin. I need you. That was what I prayed. And, and, and it wasn't a long prayer, but it was a desperate, sincere prayer. I could hear the motor of the car cranking. I could hear the tires wheeling. And in a second, the car wheels up beside me. My friend opened the door. I leaped in. I said, get me to a hospital. He took off. Fortunately, we were, less, we were only less than a half a block from the hospital. So within four to five minutes, I was already there at the hospital. What was another miraculous thing about it was this. I'm bleeding like crazy. I jump out of the car. I grab an orderly. He's standing outside lighting a cigarette. He's thinking it's an easy, you know, it's a calm night. He's lighting a cigarette. He's got on his white outfit. I jump on his back. I just fall on him. And I said, I need some help, but he scares him. He turns around and grabs me, but then he picks me up. He starts to run a few feet and then throws me on a gurney and runs me down a hallway. At the very same time, coming in the other side of the hospital there is a cardiovascular surgeon, the very best one in our entire city. Now, it's 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning. You know what he says? He says to me later, I was at home. My wife was out of town. I couldn't sleep. For some reason, I just couldn't sleep. He said, so I just got up and said, well, let me just, if I'm going to stay awake, let me go over to the hospital, hang out with some people, and maybe somebody will come in. It's a Saturday night. I'll go over there, and if they need me, I'll be available. While he's walking in one door, they're running me down the hallway on the other. They scream at him, we're glad you're here. He was the best and the only one that could have been there at that moment. He comes running in immediately, and, and while he's there, another surgeon who had been a trauma surgeon in Vietnam is there. God had everyone, three different doctors in one second were on the scene. So within about five minutes, I'm getting attention. i never forget the words of that doctor, though. When he put his finger in my throat, he turned around and said, get the district attorney up here. This young man's been stabbed to death. He's not dead yet, but he'll be dead before he gets here. His juggler vein's completely severed. And when he said those words, I can't help but think, I remember thinking then, 
did I come to the wrong place? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, literally, I, I came for hope. This guy said he's going to be dead in a few minutes, and, and I'm thinking, look, and, and all of a sudden, I remember seeing a scaffold, and he came toward me with a scaffold to cut me open to get to, to start work. And then I remember blacking out. I remember they put me under gas. I woke up. Eleven and a half hours of surgery, I wake up. I'm in a room when I look at an intensive care, and I see doctors and nurses outside the hallway, and I'm thinking, what in the world is this? I, that, I thought that would have been a bad dream. I thought I would have woke up the next day and said, man, you know, that was a terrible nightmare. Glad that didn't happen. But instead, I've got machines hooked to me. I've got doctors and nurses. There's even a policeman standing in the hallway guarding the door in case the guy wasn't captured yet and came back to, to finish. So I'm sitting out there, and then it dawned on me. God was real. I'm alive. Something's happened to me. I, and I started thinking about praying. Now, then I prayed something that I'll be honest with you, I still feel, but I prayed the second prayer I ever prayed in my life. I, I'd never, like I said, I'd never gone to church. I, I prayed this prayer. I said, God, you, thank you for what you did. Obviously, you, you kept me alive for a reason. You did something in me. But God, you don't know me. You don't know what you get if you get me. So I said, God, I tell you what, I'll never bother you again. I want to thank you, but I thought God only cared about good people. That wasn't me. So I said, God, I'll never call on you again. I'll never talk to you again. It's, you know, thank you for what you did, but I won't bother you anymore, God. I thought God maybe had one miracle he'd give you one time. That'd be the end of it. And I had this peace in my heart. If I ever felt anything, I felt I heard God laugh. I really felt there was a laughter in my soul that I even thought, where in the world did that come from? I now know it was God looking at me like, boy, you're so innocent and green. Well, I sure enough, I, I laid in the hospital, and you got to understand, I had a hunger for the Bible like I never had. I would pray night and day. I spent 30 days there in intensive care and convalescent. And, and my friends would come up to see me, and they'd say, well, when you get out, you know, we'll go back to party. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. I want to live different. They said, what do you want to do? I said, man, I, I want to go forgive people I've wronged. I want to go and ask for forgiveness. I, I want to do some things in my life I've never done. I want to go to church. And they started saying, Bill, you, you lost too much blood. And, and, you know, that's, you'll be normal later. And then one of them said, Bill, listen, here's the way it works. They said, I go to church all the time. It's like a youth camp. It'll last two weeks. At the end of two weeks, you'll be right back to normal. Well, it's been 43 years, and I'm not normal yet because it still lasted. Yeah. It, it wasn't a weekend experience. I'm telling you, it was a radical change. And I would tell them, I'd say, look, you don't understand. On the outside, I look the same, but on the inside, there's somebody living inside me that doesn't want to do what I used to do and wants to do what I never thought about doing. I said, this is the craziest thing. So I would read. We had a Gideon Bible in the hospital, in the bedside. I, I picked up that Bible and started reading it. Now, I would read that Bible and read that Bible and read that Bible. Now, here's what's crazy. You got to understand, I was, I, I was so green, I didn't know nothing. I didn't know who came first, Abraham, Adam, Jacob. I didn't know who was where in the Bible. So I'd just write, try my best to read it. You ever heard somebody say, uh, they didn't know the Bible, they called Job Job? Look, I called Psalms spasms. <laughs> I'd, I'd say, man, I, I was reading spasms today. And some nurse would say, what? Give, give me that. So I had a girl, I had this nurse, she, uh, she said, you're the greenest person I've ever met. I've never known anybody that don't know nothing. You're the biggest blank slate I ever met. And she was a nurse. She said, I'm going to come to the hospital every day 30 minutes before my shift, and I'm going to read you the Bible and teach you. She said, you're the most naive, so she did. She'd come in and read, and I gave her a hard time. You know, she'd read, she'd say, uh, and Jesus walked on water. And I'd say, wait, hold on, what did you say? He walked on water. I'd say, nobody can walk on water. She'd say, he saved you, didn't he? I'd say, read on, read on. <laughs> and literally, 
changed my whole life. I got out of the hospital, started going to church, started trying to get things right with people, was working one day, and, and, and in the process of working one day, uh, the, the boss told me, he said, Bill, look, he said, you, you kind of our problem solver around here. You have a lot of leadership gifts. All the guys, you're younger than all of them, but they're all asking you for advice. He said, Bill, have you ever thought about finishing the education? I said, I don't know what to do. He said, well, I'll tell you what, let's try this. He said, let's, let's see if we can get you a GED. I said, what's that? He said, well, that'll help you to get above that, and that way you can get in college if you want. I said, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You tell me. He said, okay. We went down to the local college, and they were having a, they said, had a sign where you signed up to take a GED, and went in. The girl said, well, you got to study six months at least. Nobody does it immediately because we're teaching it tomorrow. But you take these books. I said, no, I want to do it tomorrow. She said, you're not going to pass. I said, let me do it. She said, okay. So I paid my fee. I came down there and took it, and I passed it. Then I called the boss. I said, okay, what do I do next? He said, you need to go to college. I said, okay, where do I go? He said, go to my college. He said, I got some connections. Let me get you over here. So we went, sat down there with the dean of the school, and uh, he talked to him, and he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'm going to let you come on probation, okay? He said, that means we're going to come for one semester. If you do okay, then we're good. If not, we'll have a discussion. You can come on probation. Does it bother you to come on probation? I said, no, nah, I've got a lot of friends on probation. So I don't <laughs> sure. I said, I joined the crowd, okay? So... After I graduated with my bachelor's degree, then, then of all things, then I wound up being called to preach. I didn't know it. I was praying one morning. I was just praying, and, and, and of all things, while I was praying, my mother happened to be there of all things, and, and I was in a back room praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as you hear me. And I said, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. You changed me. You saved me. You gave me a life I didn't have. You gave me direction. Anything you want me to do. And then I heard him say, will you preach? Now, I, I didn't know a preacher other than, you know, the pastor of the church, but we never even talked. I didn't, nobody in my family was preachers. I mean, I didn't know. He said, will you preach? And have you ever tried to drown God out? You know, you, you, so you, you, can, you can get the excuse, I didn't hear you. Well, here's what I did. I said, I'll do anything you want me to do. I raised my voice. And he said, will you preach? I said, anything you want me to do, will you preach? Finally, I said, yes, I, I'll preach. And I felt a weight lifted off me. And then I thought, oh, that's good. That's so cool. All he wanted to know is if I was willing. He's never going to call me. He just wanted to know if I was willing. So I thought, well, that feels good. It wasn't but 10 minutes later, probably, before the pastor of the church my mother attended drove up. She said, I've been looking for Bill. You know where I can find him? And she said, yeah, actually, he's here. And so I had told her about 10 minutes, before, about two minutes earlier when she, he first drove up. She said, uh, he's never come to visit me. What's that about? I said, he's coming to see if I'll preach. She said, yeah, right. I said, you watch. Sure enough, he said, Bill, I know you've never talked publicly. I know you've never shared your story. He said, but Bill, this morning I couldn't get away from it. I'm leaving to go to Birmingham on an emergency, and I don't have anybody to preach for me Sunday. Will you come? I know God told me to, to come to you. Will you come and speak? And I knew God called me too, so I said yes. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do. As soon as he drove out of the driveway, I picked up the Bible. I'm not kidding you. I had three days to get ready. I read this Bible from cover to cover. I couldn't find a sermon. I mean, I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I didn't know how to preach. I know what you did. And so I wound up going to the church to preach that morning. An older guy gets up. He says, uh, we have a young man named Bill Purvis. He's going to speak this morning. The first time he's ever spoken, he's going to do this this morning, and I want you all to pray for him. And in those days, you know, you had the, it was a Baptist church. They had the first, second, and last verse, you know. They always left out that third verse. He said, we're going to sing first, second, last verse, then he's going to come. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, man, look, I wish, they'd, I wish somebody would jump up and say, I love that song. Let's sing five more verses. <laughs> you know, it didn't take but a second. I was standing up there. And then I did this. I, I, I was nervous as could be, 
And, and so I told them, I said, I was going to preach from Psalm 70. I said, open your Bible to Psalm 70. Well, here's the bad thing about, about being in a church where everybody was so good. They all knew the Bible. So I said, turn to Psalm 70, and I'm trying to find it. And everybody in the church just went, and there it was. <laughs> and I was looking around. They're already there, and I, I, don't, I can't find it. I'm turning through my Bible. And then I don't realize I got this microphone on, so if I'm thinking out loud, they're hearing it. I'm going, oh, gosh, I can't find it. And, and then I said, done tore a page in my Bible. Oh, no. And then I said this, and I, mean, I said, just like the devil done stole Psalms out of my Bible, and I can't find it. <coughs> so I found a verse. It was open to 2 Timothy. And I said, the Lord led me to 2 Timothy. I, I just said that because I was there first. <laughs> so I wasn't losing that one. I was holding that. So they got over there. I butchered up that verse. I didn't know what they was talking about. I didn't know. I, it was about, I swear, it was the fastest message I ever preached in my life. I gave an invitation. You know how stupid my invitation was? Here's what I said, literally. Benny, this is what I said. I said, look, folks, I don't know how you close the service. All I know is this. If you want what I got, come get it. <laughs> that, that's what I said. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. You know, later I learned Billy Graham would say, you know, the buses will wait for you. Come this aisle. I didn't know. Do you want what I got? Come get it. They, and they started coming. And I was like, what in the world? People, I mean, I had a guy on the Delta Force. I mean, he'd been over there in, in, in Vietnam. He's coming down the aisle. He's sobbing. I'm looking around. People are getting saved. And I'm saying, what in the world is going on? That was when God called me to preach. I go back to my boss. I said, look, God called me to preach. What did he do now? He said, now you got to go to seminary. I said, what's that? He said, well, that's like med school for the doctor and law school for the, for the attorney. Now you got to go to graduate school. I said, okay. So I went and, and finished two master's degree and a doctorate, all magna cum laude. It was never that I was ignorant. It was that I was aimless. I didn't know. Nobody guided me. Nobody ever said, do this. If they'd have said it, I was teachable. I was willing. And so I did that, and then, of course, I went to the church where Benny had mentioned a moment ago. It was a th Easter Sunday, 32 people, and uh, they weren't speaking to each other. They had all kind of fights. <laughs> had a dollar and 50 cent in the savings account, so I came for no salary. The only reason they voted me in is because I came for no salary. They I got me cheap, and I never thought I'd stay. I didn't know what to do. You know what's crazy, how God's blessed? From, from January 15, in fact, 2015, we baptized somebody every single day of the year since 2015, 2016, now 2017. God's blessed. We had over 10,000 people just live in attendance last week for Easter. Um, yeah. the, the fact that God could take somebody who had nothing and do what he did. And, and what I learned through all of that was this. I learned a lot of things. I learned, I learned that with God, your past doesn't have to equal your future. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or if you've messed up and you're ashamed of your past. You're so afraid it's going to come out one day. And listen, if you let the devil haunt you with that stuff, get rid of it today. Just realize God looks at you and he sees your future. And God loves you. And God's not trying to hurt you. Get this, folks. God is for you, okay? God's for you. And God wants to help us. Our problem is sometimes we get in the way. And the other thing I learned was that God will use the most unlikely people. I mean, God has a way of choosing the people that maybe we wouldn't have chosen. God has a way of, we think sometimes, well, i got to be qualified. Can I tell you, if God calls you, you're qualified. Hey, you're qualified the moment he calls. Think of what he did. Fatherless Abraham, and he makes him the father of multitudes. Stuttering Moses, you go be my spokesman to the king. Uh, trickster Jacob, he raised him up. Prostitute Rahab. 
scared little Gideon, weak-eyed Paul, little bitty David, you'd be the greatest king ever. God has a way of taking the people others overlooked, the people at the back of the line, the people that there is no hope for and saying, I want to show you what I can do. See, it's never about my story. It's really his story. That's the whole purpose. It's, all God uses me for, I believe, is to remind people of a, as I'm a trophy of his grace that God loves you. And if God can do that for me, he can do it for you. You remember, remember that light pole I told you about that I went to? I went out to that light pole and I, and I prayed that night, held on to it, and cried out to God. Craziest thing was I never told anybody this. This was my secret. Just my wife and myself knew it and God. But every single year, April the 28th, now it's been 43 years, I've never missed one. Every single year, I would go back to that light pole and I would kneel there and I would pray. That original place where I first gave my life to God and I would spend a time saying thank you. Thank you for what you did for me, God. I never forgot it. I never wanted to. I remember in the Bible, you know where the, the, there's a 10 lepers and, and Jesus healed 10 and nine went on, but one turned around and came back and said, thank you. I wanted to be that one leper. I never wanted to forget what he did for me. One year I was in Dallas, Texas speaking. It was April the 28th. I jumped on a plane, went to Atlanta, Georgia, got another flight over to Columbus, got a taxi to that plane, to that place, got the cab driver to wait while I sat there and prayed and talked to God and thanked him, got back in the taxi, went back to Atlanta, back to Dallas, spoke that night, and nobody ever knew it. Now, here's what's crazy. Three years ago, the hospital wanted to tear down that parking lot and redo it, and they wanted to demolish those light poles. And the doctors in a boardroom said, we don't know why, but that pastor, that big mega church over there, we've seen him over there at odd hours. You know, he, he'll go over there and you'll, he'll see him get out of the car and kneel down and pray publicly. And that, that means something to him. wonder what it means. And so they called me. And I sat down with a board of doctors there and said, guys, here's what it meant. And I told them this story I told you. They said, Bill, can we give you that pole? We, we're going to demolish it, but can we give you that? I said, sure. I never forget when I drove home and told my wife, hey, they want to give me that pole. She said, what am I going to do with the pole? <laughs> and, I mean, well, and I said, I don't know. I got up and told the church. I had a, about a dozen contractors got up and said, Pastor, why don't we take it and put it on the property of the church and we'll make a prayer garden out of it. And they put an inscription there. And there's an inscription on that very place and it says this, April the 28th, 1974, our pastor cried out in desperation to God for a miracle and he received it. And then it says, perhaps if your heart is broken today and you're crying out for a miracle and you're desperate for God, God will give you a miracle as well from this place. We have people all hours of the day, all times up there. The other night I was coming back from Florida and it was a, a I thought I'm going to get a ticket, but I wasn't letting the, the clock pass before I got there. And sure enough, about 1130 that night, I pulled into the church parking lot before I even went home, walked over there, still April 28th, this was just last Friday. And I knelt down, and I spent about 30 minutes praying out there till it turned midnight, thanking God again for taking a little boy that had nothing, I mean nothing, that never felt worthy, that, was, uh, that on the inside was aimless, for caring enough about me to say, I'm going to do something with your life if you just let me, and I'll let you be an encouragement to other people throughout their lives. That boy was right when he told me those words that day. He said, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. The peace you always wanted, you got it when you found God. The purpose you always needed to do the will of God, you found it. The power you need to live the life you always wanted to. Everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. I hope you'll understand that, that no matter how far you've gone or what you've done or, or what you can't forgive yourself for, 
There's a God that when he looks at you, he's never looked at you with his arms folded. He's never looked at you like, well, you go do better and come back and we'll talk. There's a God that looks at you and puts his arms out and says, I love you. And that God wants to walk with you through every valley, and every time you get on the mountaintop, all he wants is for you to turn and say, thank you. That's the God we serve, and that's the God we love. Let's go to the Lord and pray together for a moment. Father, I come to you this morning and pray that in this church today, that whatever hearts you're stirring, whatever lives you're moving, whatever hope you're giving, that you will use this moment to help us to remember that you're a God that can make a miracle out of a mess. And there's nothing too hard for you. And I pray today that they'll listen kindly to the words of their precious pastor. And as Brother Benny speaks in a moment to them about how we can make the next step to move forward with you and break free from the things that have haunted us, I pray that today will be a day that we say, I'm going to take action and trust this God because everything we're looking for can be found in Jesus. And for that, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, I trust the message today has spoken to your heart. And if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I want to challenge you to do that today. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. And I've often said, it's as simple as ABC. A stands for acknowledge. You've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. B stands for believe. You've got to believe that Christ and His blood was shed on the cross for your sin. And then see, you simply must confess your sins to Him. I want to encourage you right now to repeat a simple prayer with me. I'll pray the prayer. You repeat it with me if you'd like to accept Christ as your personal Savior. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. But God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm so sorry I want to change. I believe that you died for my sin. And I confess my sin to you right now. Come into my heart, Lord, and forgive me of all my sin. Now thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Thank you for coming in to my life. Amen. Friend, congratulations on the greatest decision that you'll ever make. And I want you to know, this decision is not based on how you feel right now because God's not a feeling. He's a fact. This decision is based on the fact that you have done what God's Word says you must do to have eternal life. So congratulations on the greatest decision you'll ever make and thank you for being with us today. God bless you, and we'll see you soon.